We're going to be in James chapter 5 today, verses 7 through 12. We'll read those in just a minute. A while back, our washing machine started leaking just a little bit. So after wash day, we'd pull the machine out and use a rag to dry up the little bit of water on the floor. As time went on, the leak got worse and then a little worse. And after a while, we were using towels to dry the floor. And that's when I said the words that my wife of almost 40 years fears most. I can fix it. <laughs> I went online, like all good fix-it men, right? And, uh, and I looked for LG washer leaks from bottom. And, and I found a lot of things, but I found one that I was sure was the culprit. This is it. So I could follow the YouTube guy's instructions and for 20 bucks fix our washer. Or I can hire a repairman to come in and do it for $150. When I said that to Karen, she said something like, but a repairman could get it done more quickly. <laughs> well, undeterred, I said, I could get it done quickly too. I would order the part before I even looked at it. And then if that part wasn't the problem, I could send it back afterwards. We could hire a repairman, we'd be none the worse. I ordered the part, I think it was on a Thursday. On Friday night, I pulled the machine out farther than ever, turned it sideways, took off the access panel in the back, got down on the floor with a flashlight and checked out that part that I'd ordered. I already ordered it. And the part was pristine. I mean, it looked brand new. So I asked Karen, would you run a load of wash so I can visually inspect for leaks while it's running? So I was in the study when the machine began to discharge water, and our laundry room sounded like Taquamanon Falls. There was this <laughs> I went running in there. There's water gushing out from a tear in the plastic drain pipe, which I probably caused by pulling it out over and over again and then turning it sideways. And so it was worse than when I started. So now I had to order a different part, take the front of the machine off, take the top of the machine off in order to install it. I am pleased to say that the installation was a complete success. So now we're back to where we were when we started with a small leak on the floor. <laughs> but honey, I can fix that. <laughs> in my attempt to make things better, I made them worse. I was in a hurry. My, wife's, my wife shares that responsibility with me. And I started to fix things before I even knew what was wrong. I was impatient. James knows that when impatient people try to fix things, like social justice, like mistreatment, like relational conflicts in the family, they often make things worse. We're going to talk about patience today. In James's day, his contemporaries in Israel tried to fix their society's economic inequality. And they started a civil war that turned into an international war that destroyed their economy, brought down their government, and eventually ended their existence as a nation. The same kind of thing happens on a much smaller scale in our everyday lives. We have a problem with a spouse or with a child or with a coworker. We think we've been treated badly. Maybe we're right. 
But rather than go to God in prayer and ask him how he wants us to deal with this and wait patiently to see his answer, we rush in, sometimes with harsh words and angry attitudes, and before we know it, we've made things worse. And hostility is gushing out like the water from my washing machine. We've turned a small problem into a big one. We need patience. You need patience. But patience is a fruit of the Spirit. It's not a manufactured good. You can't order it. You have to grow it across the various regions of your life. Because remember, you're bigger on the inside than on the outside. Some people ask God for patience and expect it to drop out of heaven on them. That's not how it works. Other people say, for goodness sake, don't ask for patience because God will give you troubles. That's wrong-headed too. Of course you can ask your loving Father for patience, but understand he doesn't just hand it to you ready-made. He helps you become, through interaction with him, patient. Now let's read our text, James chapter 5 starting with verse 7 through verse 12, and hear what God wants to say to us personally about patience. Be patient then, brothers, until the the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains? You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else, Let your yes be yes, and your no, no, or you will be condemned. In order to be patient, that is to become a patient person, across the various regions of your life, you need to know some things. You need to know the when, the what, the how of patience. Until when must you be patient? And for what must you be patient? And how can you be patient? And you also need to know the who. With whom must you be patient? So I want to take those in order, just as I listed them. The when, what, how, and who of patience. First, the when. Until when must you be patient? James tells us to be patient until the coming of the Lord. Until he's present with us. Now, I don't think he's telling us to wait patiently for the coming of the Lord, but to wait patiently until the coming of the Lord. Note the prepositions. It's not that we're waiting for his coming, but that we are waiting until his coming for what will then happen. James's illustration is of the Palestinian farmer who waits until the autumn and spring rains. But it's not that he's waiting for the rains as such. He's waiting for what the rains will produce, the valuable crop. The rains are needed to complete the crop and are therefore eagerly anticipated. In the same way, we wait until Christ's coming, which is needed to complete 
what? To complete. If we've been reading the letter and thinking about this, we probably know the answer. To complete us. We are waiting for ourselves to be made perfect and complete. Chapter 1, key verse, verse 4. Not lacking anything. To the great glory of God. And to our endless delight. That's the valuable fruit God is growing. Valuable to him and to us. But it won't ripen until Christ comes. And so we wait until the coming of the Lord. It'll help you be patient if you remember what you're waiting for. You, transformed to be like Christ, glorious, powerful, and overflowing with joy. We're talking about you being like this. No more lack. No more sorrow. Up till now, there's always been something missing. You can feel it. But at Christ's coming, for the first time in your life, there won't be anything missing. And it'll be because you are all there, perfect and complete, not lacking anything. Tim Keller invites us to imagine two employees, same age, same socioeconomic status, same education level, even the same temperament. They're hired in at the same time, at the same hourly wage, to do the same repetitive assembly line work. Very boring. They're put in identical rooms with identical lighting, temperature, ventilation. They're given the same number of breaks every day. Their conditions are the same in every way, except for one difference. The first employee is told that she will receive a $5,000 bonus at the end of the year if she stays with the work, while the second is told she'll receive a $5 million bonus. After a couple weeks, the two women are together in the break room. The $30,000 woman is saying, I hate this. This is so tedious, it's driving me crazy. Aren't you thinking about quitting? And the second woman says, are you kidding? I whistle while I work. Keller asks, what's going on? You have two people who are experiencing identical circumstances, but in radically different ways. What makes the difference? And his answer is, it's their expectation of the future. What we believe about our future completely controls how we experience our present. We are irreducibly hope-based creatures. And James is telling us our hope is great. We need to hold on to it. Take hold, as the author of Hebrews says, of the hope that we have. The when is until Christ's coming. The what is being made perfect and, and complete, not lacking anything. Other biblical, biblical ways of expressing that are being conformed to the image of Christ, Romans 8, 29. Being like him. 1 John 3, 2, we know that when he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Experiencing the transformation of our lowly bodies, this is Philippians 3, 21, so that they are like his glorious body. And being, Romans 8, 30, 
glorified, finished, completed, if we could get even a glimpse of what awaits us, we could handle anything. The when until Christ's coming. The what? The completion of God's work in us. What about the how? I lose patience over trivial things, leaking washing machines and bad drivers and frozen computers. How can I be patient in big things, in, in sickness, in injustice, in failure, in disappointment? How can I be patient? If you're going to be patient, there's some things you need to do. One is you need to reinforce your heart. The NIV translates stand firm in verse 8, but the original is closer to the ESV's establish your hearts or the NASB's strengthen your hearts. The word originally had the idea of securing something solidly, making it fast by bracing it or buttressing it. We're to do that with our hearts. Otherwise, we'll fail in being patient over and over again. Now, remember that in the Bible... The heart is not the seat of affections. That's the way we speak in English and in American English. You know, it, she makes my heart go pitter-patter, right? But the, the heart in the Bible is the center from which our lives are directed. I'm in it with all my heart. That's the idea. We are to reinforce our hearts so that our choices continue to be for Christ and against sin, for hope and against despair, for our future in spite of our past. We need to reinforce, to brace our hearts. It helps to brace your heart by getting next to other believers who are all in for Jesus. By the way, it hurts to brace our hearts to get next to other believers who are not all in for Jesus. They, they, they rub off on us. God's word, read daily, considered meditatively. How does this apply? How can I do this? We'll bolster our hearts and shape our choices. If you're going to be patient in hardship, you're going to have to reinforce your heart with strong bracing. Next, <clears throat> we remember the nearness of the Lord's coming. His presence with us. James says his presence is near. We brace our hearts. Not only so we can endure present hardship, we got plenty of those, but so that we'll be ready for future judgment. James has been calling people to be patient until the Lord comes in spite of the economic disparity and cruel oppression they're suffering. When the Lord comes, he'll set things right but it's not just things that need to be set right. We need to be set right, too. So we better brace our hearts. Something else that will help, James says, is to model yourself on those who have endured difficult times and have done it well. Like the prophets, he says, or like Job. Verse 10 says, brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets. What I think James is saying, and if it's a more literal rendering of the original language, is take as a pattern 
the suffering and the patience of the prophets. In other words, he's not merely telling us to notice what they did, but to do what they've done. To expect hardship and to endure it as they endured it. With God's help and to God's glory. Here's the thing people always miss. It's all about God. It's all with his help. Always. And when they try to do it on their own, they fail. Have you seen that pattern in the lives of people that you know? They've endured. They've endured difficult times, and they've done it with faith in God. I'm watching people in our own church family do that right now. Dave Brown's a good example. He's been really sick for about six or seven months, but he's trusting the Lord as he goes. Be like that. Be like John Stott. I love John Stott. John Stott, the great scholar, preacher, the rector of All Souls Church in London. He died in 2011. A friend was with him, uh, I think, three weeks before he died, and Stott was very weak, hardly able to speak. They talked about old times together, but before his friend left, he said, how would you like me to pray for you? This, this great pastor, Christian leader, scholar, whispered, because that's all he could do was whisper, pray that I will be faithful to Jesus until my last breath. Pattern your life on him. Pattern your life on the people who pattern their lives on Jesus. Those are three things in the how of patience that you can do. But the how is not just about what you do, but about what you avoid doing. In verse 9, James warns us to avoid grumbling about our fellow Christians. I mean, that'll kill your patience just like that. Don't grumble against each other, brothers. James knows that when things are hard, we are susceptible to taking out our frustration on the people closest to us. That was so in the lives of the people to whom he was writing, who were at the mercy of the merciless, who were exploiting poor Christians. Yet these discouraged believers were taking out their frustrations on one another, on family members and friends and fellow church members. And it's the same in our day. Your spouse leaves the potato chip bag open, and the chips get stale, and you make a federal case out of it. But it's not about potato chips. It's about something else. It's about your job, maybe. Uh, maybe about the fear that you're not going to have enough. How often we grumble at or about the people who are closest to us over things that wouldn't bother us at all if our lives were full of hope. James warns his readers not to do that warns them in the light of the judgment that will happen when the Lord's come, when the Lord comes. Don't do it, he says, lest you be judged. See, it's not just the rich and powerful who will be judged when Christ returns, for we must all, this is St. Paul, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. If we fall into the trap of grumbling about people, and it is a steel trap, it will not make our hardship easier to bear. It will make it 10 times more difficult. 
And don't think you'll be excused because you're going through a hard time. Sinful behaviors can be forgiven through the blood of Christ, but they can never be excused. God never says it doesn't matter. Jesus didn't die because it doesn't matter. And anyway, in the final analysis, judgment is not so much about what you've done, but about what you've become. God can forgive what you've done. He's eager to forgive what you've done. But you will still be immature, incomplete, and lacking many things unless you receive his grace and obey his word. Grumbling is evidence that you're not doing that. That you're not perfect and complete, that you're still lacking many things. Don't grumble. Don't complain about other people. Another thing to avoid is taking a shortcut around patience by manipulating people with words. This is what James is talking about in verse 12, which, by the way, goes right back to what he heard from Jesus. Above all, better, before all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. We can think, well, how do you throw that in there? That doesn't seem to be related to anything. But this has to do with what he's talking about. There, there are many ways to manipulate people with words. In James' day, the most common way was to, to take an oath before God. I swear this is true. God is my witness. I swear by the altar in the temple. I swear by the gold on the altar in the temple. People who do that kind of thing are impatient. They don't want to prove themselves by being people of their word. People whose yes is always yes and whose no is always no. That takes too long. Now they're trying to persuade people not to believe the truth. That's a good thing and a right thing to help people believe the truth. They're trying to get them to believe them so they can get their way. That hurts the cause of Jesus, and in the long run, it always hurts the person's cause too. So the win is be patient until Jesus comes. The what is be patient for God to make you perfect and complete, not lacking anything. Hold on to hope. The how is by bracing your heart. Get around other people. Fill your heart and your mind with the word of God. Pattern your life on those who have patiently endured by faith and by resolutely refusing to grumble about others or use manipulative strategies to get them to do your will. Okay, when, what, how, now who? Remember who's going to reward your patience. Who is it you're waiting for? Verse 11, you've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. The Lord is very aware of you and your situation. He knows the hardship you're going through, the pain, the fear, the confusion it causes. He's not only aware, he cares deeply for you. He is full of compassion. That word is just full of emotion and empathy. When I said the heart is not the center of our affections in the Bible, that's true. The center in the Bible of our feelings is our stomach. And the word that's translated here as compassion 
has to do with a person's stomach. You know, we say we, we get butterflies in our stomach. We feel it right here. That's what this word has to do with. James is telling us that God feels what we're going through. God wants the best for you. He wants you perfect and complete, not lacking anything. A you that will be delighted to be you. He's deeply aware of your pain, touched by the feeling of our infirmities. But he knows that changing your circumstances will not make things better in any lasting way. That's what we want him to do. Wave a magic wand, change our circumstances, but leave us alone. That won't work. Only changing you will work. You must be made perfect and complete, not lacking anything. God's not willing to sacrifice your future to ease your present. Allow me to say that again. God is not willing to sacrifice your future to ease your present. Remember, he is a father, the father. What kind of father would he be if he wasn't committed to your best? He will make things right. You can depend on it, but better by far, he will make you right. Just don't short-circuit what he's doing. You must be patient. You must trust him. In your situation right now, I'm going to close with Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Romans 8, 24, and 25, which I think is very apropos to the subject of patience. He says, waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us. But the longer we wait, the larger we become, and the more joyful our expectancy. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. Let's pray. I'm going to give you a moment. If there's something going on that you're having real trouble being patient for, being patient over, would you talk to God about that right now? Would you trust him? Brace your heart. merely ask for patience for us, but that you will fill us with hope. Through our Lord Jesus Christ.